Kyla Tianhara is an assistant professor in the School of Environmental Studies and the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's University and a visiting fellow at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at Australian National University. She's the author of Green Keynesianism and the Global Financial Crisis and the co-editor of the Routledge Handbook on the Green New Deal, which is a book that I find absolutely essential for thinking about the potential social benefits of decarbonizing the economy and rethinking growth in a time of climate breakdown. She's also one of the few researchers looking closely at the function of investor-state dispute settlement as an international legal apparatus that largely protects investors from the pushback that they might receive from states. There's no way I could quickly summarize what this work deciphers in terms of the obscure nature of the global legal structure that it identifies, but not a lot of people I've spoken with have any knowledge about it. They might understand in the abstract that there is a system of global capitalism that is protected by the codification of laws that largely protect profits and private investment over, let's say, the safety or autonomy of communities. But this is the actual system that serves that. Um, and Kyla is uniquely insightful about how it works and what it's set up to prevent. I wanted to underscore at the top here that we engage in this conversation with the concepts of utopianism and pragmatism in climate action. That's not a disclaimer so much as an invitation to ask yourself where you sit in relation to this idea that abolishing fossil fuels is utopian, or to kind of request that you sit with the question of whether it's too much to ask that the economy be democratized or energy be regarded as a source of social wealth rather than a source of capital. It's maybe worth thinking too about why it is the case that there's a legally binding international law or legal structure that protects fossil fuel companies from reprisal, but no binding law to protect the planet from the forces that are exacerbating our mounting climate emergency. What history precedes this moment where it's primarily rich countries that benefit from existing laws and international treaties while poor countries get poorer? And what mechanisms or modes of resistance exist so that we can funnel our collective outrage at these legally sanctioned systems of upholding inequality into something real? In, in her book, Ending Fossil Fuels, which I reference a lot on this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, Holly Jean Buck writes about talking to you about your research. Uh, the question that Buck is left with after talking with you <laughs> is, uh, how does one fight something so shadowy and dispersed? Um, your work is about what, what Buck calls the obscure legal structures by which much fossil fuel investment persists in spite of, you know, all kinds of energy being put into phase out, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that's just like, that's one big part of your research. And, you know, I actually encountered your work first through this book, and I found it interesting that there were a number of reflections in it on like the phrases that are commonly used to describe this race to stabilize the climate, like phase out, for mm -hmm. example. Um, you both talk about the language of stranded assets. Yeah. Um, Buck's sense is that there's like 
almost a degree of pathos in that phrase, like all oh, these poor stranded assets <laughs> um, that just does not dovetail with like the gravity of it. Um, I wondered if you wanted to explain just like fundamentally what stranded assets means, why it's an important concept and what some of its maybe valences are from your perspective. Sure. So <clears throat> stranded assets is just basically the idea that uh, as we, um, move towards a different type of energy system in particular. Um, I mean, you can have stranded assets in other areas, but I usually talk about it in terms of energy systems that, you know, the, the traditional sources of energy and the, the investments that have been put into those traditional sources of energy. So coal, oil, and gas, and, uh, you know, all the, all the investment that goes into extracting, uh, those fossil fuels out of the ground, but also transporting them in pipelines um, and then all of the associated infrastructure that goes along with um, burning uh, the fossil fuels, mm -hmm. getting them to the customers and burning them. So power plants, um, gas stations, I mean, you can think of lots of different lots of different types of infrastructure mm -hmm. that are implicated. But basically, if we want to shift away from those sources of energy, uh, and do it rather quickly because, I mean, that's the, the key element here is that we, we can't just, I mean, phase out, suggest, suggest something that's very gradual. And maybe if we had started acting on climate change when we first realized it was a problem, then we could have phased out. But now we need something very rapid uh, in terms of a, a transformation of our energy systems. That means that investment that's already been made uh, into infrastructure, into extractive projects, um, is, is not going to be uh, recouped in the form of profits. Uh, and this can happen for economic reasons or because uh, we make you know, political decisions to, to end things before their, uh, their economic life would be fulfilled. So to take a more concrete example, if you look at a, um, a coal power plant that it can have an economic life of 30 or 40 years, um, but if you built one in a country like the Netherlands, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the past decade. And then the government comes in with a, um, um, a more rapid phase out of coal power in order to respond to demands and indeed court rulings about uh, the need to address climate change. Uh, those plants can no longer operate for their full life. So part of that investment is going to be um, stranded. That's the idea. And then with fossil fuels, we've been spending all, all of this money exploring for oil and gas that we can't afford to actually take out of the ground. Uh, so the, the investments that have been made in, in looking for those uh, fossil fuels would also be quote unquote stranded. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, thanks for that. It does provide a kind of more concrete picture, um, but it also underscores the fact that like the speed right? The speed mm -hmm. of it. Um, cause the, the severity of the crisis, like can't be overstated. No, <laughs> definitely not. Your report, for example, for, uh, the international Institute for environment and development, uh, with, I think Lorenzo Cotula talks about how, um, you know, emissions began rebound rebounding as soon as lockdown restrictions were eased, um, in the wake of COVID-19 and that put the world back on the path of three degrees Celsius or more of warming by the end of the century. There's no end to the negative impacts of that pathway. Doing away with fossil fuels in time, you say, will require more serious supply side measures than what is currently like on the table. Um, I wondered if you could give us a sense of 
a few of these supply side or upstream measures to curtail green ga- greenhouse gas emissions and maybe also speak to why, you know, despite the fact that most oil and gas reserves are on public lands or in offshore deposits within the control of a state, the existence of investor state dispute settlement um, as like a legal structure threatens to block a lot of these supply side measures. So a lot of the climate policies that we typically uh, talk about, um, especially here here in Canada as of late, but in a lot of countries are are focused on things like carbon taxes, Mm -hmm. uh, which are meant to sort of um, shift uh, consumption away from, from fossil fuels by making it more expensive and incentives in terms of like giving people uh, rebates on electric cars or um, grants to help retrofit their homes to improve energy efficiency and adopt um, renewable energy and so forth. So these are um, focused more on the consumers of energy than on the producers of energy. Um, however, I mean, one of the big problems we have here in Canada is that just getting the oil and gas out of the ground is actually the largest source of emissions uh, in the mm-hmm. country before it's even uh, burned. If you added right. that in, then it would be overwhelming. So <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, attention in recent years to the fact that we, we need to focus more on on uh, trying to stop the continual production of, of fossil fuels because the companies are not behaving as if there is going to be a phase out of, of fossil fuels. They, they continue to look for new um, reserves. They continue to um, uh, exploit the ones they have. They have, they don't have um, plans to phase out voluntarily. And mm-hmm. so a lot of countries are looking towards things like uh, moratoria. Uh, the first obvious step is to stop giving out any licenses to explore. Um, but basically, even if we cut off exploration, we still have too much carbon in the existing um, assets that have, you know, are the ones that are being uh, developed, or at least have some kind of license covering them. Um, we can't afford to burn what's in those. So there's going to have to be some, uh, also some efforts to uh, retract uh, licenses mm-hmm. that have been given mm-hmm. out. And that's where the investor state dispute settlement comes in. So even if fossil fuels are on public lands um, in in countries like Canada and the UK and the US, um, we don't have state-owned, state-owned oil companies as um, there is in a lot of places such as the Middle East. Instead, we, we have systems of licensing to basically give out uh, areas of land for companies to do the exploration work on and then to develop um, the deposit if they find something commercially viable. Mm-hmm. And then in a lot of countries, they uh, don't use the licensing system. They use a contract-based system. But uh, in both cases, if, whether you use um, contracts directly with with investors or if you have auctions of licenses, in either case, these become uh, investments that can be protected under these international uh, treaties that I can explain in more detail. Mm-hmm. But basically, the, the treaties provide access to an international uh, dispute settlement process called investor state dispute settlement. Um, And so if you revoke uh, a license or if even if you provide an exploration permit, but then you don't uh, follow up and allow uh, development when there's a commercial deposit found, then -hmm. it's possible for an investor to to argue that they deserve compensation. And under a lot of national laws, compensation isn't required 
in some in some jurisdictions it is and some it isn't and there's caps on what is provided but in international investment arbitration uh there's no real caps <laughs> on how much compensation p- can be given and right. uh so that's that's where the the issue arises is that all of a sudden you're going to have if we if we're talking about stranded assets there's potentially a lot of assets that could be stranded by this kind of government supply side policy if we take climate change seriously um and and then there's going to be demands for compensation and if that ends up in these international arbitration processes then the amounts of money involved could be very substantial yeah and you know hearing you talk about it you're obviously an expert in this it it must be difficult when you're trying to communicate it to like do so in a (laughs) concise way that doesn't just overwhelm people because you do sort of speculate on how the you know exhaustingly technical nature of it seems to also kind of serve the purpose of of perpetuating it in some ways um and that there needs to be this sort of coalition of of people that are not just raising awareness but creating these um ways of kind of thinking through tactics for negotiating it um so i just want to unpack this right like in terms of the history of ISDS, uh, Investor State Dispute Settlements, you've written that the idea is that these treaties aim to promote investment flows between the state parties, but there is, you say, no consistent evidence that they actually achieve this. Like that's just kind of flatly (laughs) stated, you know, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. You've described these settlements as secretive, exclusive, riddled with conflicts of interest, inconsistent, slow, and imbalanced. So, you know, if it's the case that the ISDS system was, quote, designed to ensure stability in the investment environment, like, are there any valid reasons why they were established? How do you, or how do they sort of um, position the importance, I guess, of investment and the problem, I guess, of regulation? in the era of just like contemporary global capitalism, like there had to have been some, or there has to be some rationale, right. For, um, groups sort of supporting and buying into ISDS. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the history, it's important to understand that, that these treaties, a lot of them go back many decades and, um, the original kind of push for investment treaties was, you know, the immediate decolonial period and this concern in the the global north that um, that that companies' investments in the global south were just going to be nationalized. So there was going to be a mine or something like that, that the government would just take over. Um, and and that kind of that was dovetailed also with with a lot of, I think, uh, influence from uh, certain sectors and the fossil fuel sector being one. Uh, Nicholas Perron's work has shown from archival studies and so forth that companies like Shell were really quite heavily involved in, in this system being developed in the first place. So you have a, a confluence of the sort of concerns about uh, decolonization with, um, you know, this sort of that general corporate influence that um, that we get in there. So countries were pitched this um, sort of story that if you sign one of these, that'll help you to attract investment. Uh, there's also research uh, that's been done um, uh, by Lauga Polson that shows that a lot of a lot of countries just signed these as kind of like a diplomatic thing, like somebody was coming, they wanted to have a photo opportunity with them, and so they'd sign a bilateral investment treaty, and and nobody thought anything of it because for a long time there weren't really any. 
uh, investor state disputes arising. And so, right. you know, it didn't seem like a big deal to sign one. But then what you have happening um, in the sort of mid late 90s, you get the North American Free Trade Agreement signed, which is between Canada, the US and Mexico. This has a chapter on investment, chapter 11, which is essentially the same as one of these bilateral investment treaties, but it's just put inside a, a, a larger free, uh, free trade agreement. And you have some creative lawyers who discover, oh, you know, actually, these are pretty vague provisions in this chapter. Um, I bet you could we could use these to, to challenge regulations. So not talking about a government actually, um, you know, nationalizing an industry, but a government just putting in place some kind of policy that negatively impacts the the, the profits of a company. Mm-hmm. And so you start getting those kind of cases, a lot of them about environmental regulation uh, in the NAFTA context. And for the first time, you have uh, these cases arising between two developed countries, Canada and the US. And this caught both of those governments off guard. And there's been people on the record saying, we didn't expect this investment chapter to apply to us at all. We put this in there for Mexico. And this is part of the history, right? There's all, always yeah. been a colonial thing. The courts aren't good enough in developing countries. The governments aren't reliable. We need this kind of international system to, to protect investors because we can't rely uh, on them to do the right thing. Whereas in Canada, obviously, we have a great court system. US, we have a great court system. No one's going to sue us. But that <laughs> that's not what happened. Canada got sued quite a lot. Uh, notably, the US has never lost a suit, but a lot of people think that that's entirely uh, a political thing that the arbitrators sort of recognize that if they did have a decision against the US, then the US would no longer support the system. Uh, and eventually, we got the US um, MCA, the replacement for NAFTA. And what mm-hmm. happened was that investor state dispute settlement was taken out between Canada and the US, but it was kept uh, in there in a modified form for Mexico, specifically after lobbying from fossil fuel um, the fossil fuel industry and Greenpeace actually caught, I think it was Exxon, one of Exxon's lobbyists in a secret video, basically, uh, saying that one of their big wins under the Trump administration was to keep ISDS, uh, for Mexico. Yeah, so you can see the corporate influence. You can see that whole, uh, North South dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of like, yeah, the evidence on investment flows, it, it's incredibly, um, it's incredibly weak. There's been so many studies and no one can really find solid evidence that these treaties actually make Mm -hmm. a difference when a company is deciding uh, where to invest. However, once it's decided to invest somewhere, it may well structure its investment in order to take advantage of a treaty. So the treaty is not doing anything for the countries, but the, the companies are certainly, you know, using them to their advantage because it is quite easy for companies to have subsidiaries or mailbox in one country just to access a treaty. Yeah. I mean, and it's wow, right? Like these are the sort of ripple effects in the present of these, you know, inequitable rules that sort of codified, um, you know, an imbalance, a kind of neoliberal uh, imbalance of power and it's, you know, it's ex- extraordinary to consider that these are like legally binding treaties, international treaties, like that kind of thing is imagined to be inconceivable when it comes to like meaningful restrictions on fossil fuels to fight climate change. Um, you know, that would, that's just a non-starter. Um, 
even when you know governments don't cooperate, they can be hit with the obligation to pay compensation to companies. Um, and it it sounds like there were negotiations to some extent about these things, but not enough pushback was possible. Um, and so there is this like substantive engagement in your work with like neoliberalism, neocolonialism, even if you're not exactly maybe naming these things as such, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're focused on the asymmetries that exec- exist globally. So maybe we can pick up on that. Like you write that um, if left unchecked, ISDS could create a flow of finance from poor and climate vulnerable countries to private companies based primarily in the global north. It will also reduce the public resources in poorer countries that are available for mitigation and adaptation efforts, you know, a just transition, remediation. Um, The specific vulnerability of nations in in the global south is this core part of your intervention. And I guess, you know, you kind of spoke to it there, but why, from a global perspective, does energy transition need to concern itself with the effects of these legal structures on developing nations? Well, I think if you if you look at uh, where all the climate cases are happening right now, they are popping up uh, in the global north. So we have, right. for example, a Ruby River case here in Canada where um, there was a proposal for an, an LNG facility that, that was knocked back for environmental reasons as well as for concerns about Indigenous rights. And, and that's uh, turned into a, a $20 billion uh, NAFTA legacy case because NAFTA doesn't live on, but (laughs) some of the ISDS has a little bit of survival there. And then you've got the Keystone XL uh, XL pipeline dispute in the US, um, which, you know, Biden famously canceled Mm -hmm. that pipeline and that's being challenged. You've got some coal power plants in in the Netherlands um, that uh, objected to the, the phase out. You've got Italy actually was successfully sued by a company um, for for banning offshore oil within within a close uh, proximity of the shoreline, so mm-hmm. a lot of the cases are um, in the in the global north. The reason why um, myself and, and other scholars are concerned about the global south is be, is sort of for several reasons. First of all, uh, there are countries like Mozambique that have huge new sort of um, undeveloped. Uh, gas uh, reserves that companies are pouncing on. Uh, so the the amount of potential liability, if that country were to decide uh, not to exploit those resources now that they've given out exploration licenses and so forth, uh, would be just so huge as to, in comparison to their GDP, just like it, it, there's no chance that the country would be able to, to manage facing those kinds of disputes. Mm-hmm. And the the size of awards really is is quite critical. You know, developed countries have good legal teams. They also have resources to pay off awards if they have to. Um, but a country like Pakistan was was uh, sued successfully sued for almost six billion dollars at the same time that it was facing a financial crisis and was getting a loan from the IMF for six billion dollars. So, how could you possibly expect Pakistan to be able to pay off that award? And so with these huge uh, awards, as well as the, the general sort of lack of um, in-house legal expertise to fight these cases, the, the concern is that countries in the global south will um, choose instead not to go down the path of, of regulating uh, for climate in a way that um, would spark such disputes. And that's called regulatory chill. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, a lot of people would say, well, these countries are not, you know, currently going down that that path anyways. Um, and part of that also is a justice issue. They've not had the opportunity to exploit uh, their resources and to potentially benefit from um, the financial returns of, of exploiting those resources. Although I would say a lot of the times countries <laughs> that have exploited their resources haven't really benefited from it either. But um, there is sort of a justice element to that. They haven't contributed um, to climate change the way the global North has. And yet they're, they're sort of being asked to to forego on development opportunities. Um, but then if they do forego those development opportunities, they're potentially going to get hit with these um, claims from investors that are from the, the global north. So it seems like mm-hmm. a double or even a, a triple injustice. Uh, the other aspect of it, in addition to having sort of new uh, fossil fuel reserves that they might want to exploit, they're, um, they're still more likely to be reliant on things like coal-fired power, uh, because it has at least historically been cheaper uh, and therefore the the most um, for you know countries that don't have 100% energy access and they want to prioritize trying to get energy access for 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 impo- uh, <clears throat> impoverished parts of their country which is a totally laudable goal uh, they've sort of emphasized um, coal power which is one of the first things that really needs to be phased out because it is so uh, mm-hmm. such a dirty form of power and you know, countries in the global north have largely already gone through that transition. That's right. So, yeah. so even though I've, even though we have identified uh, coal-fired power plants um, in Europe, for example, that are incompatible with uh, a 1.5 degree uh, pathway, those plants tend to be much older than they would be in a country uh, like Indonesia. And the newer the power plant, the more likely it's going to lose value if it's stranded, and therefore the more likely an investor claim is going to arise. So mm-hmm. um, there's lots of, of sort of reasons why I think that the the claims could be bigger in the global south, and those countries are just in a weaker position to, to deal with these disputes. Um, and we, as a global community, can't can't afford for those countries not to be able to uh, address climate change because um, even though a lot of the historical emissions have come primarily from the global north, there is increasing uh, contribution from the global south and we need those uh, countries to, to to act as well. And we should be uh, financing them in order to assist them in doing so and <laughs> not, with, not with loans, but with uh, just straight up grants. So mm-hmm. we're doing a poor job on, on climate finance generally, but I feel like this the investor state dispute settlement system just makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was reading through uh, your the Routledge handbook on the Green New Deal that you co-edited, um, and there is this sense that uh, we have to obviously um, radically kind of you know change the economic system. I think the way you you talk about it is like you know the narrative is an economic one, not just because the economy is so central to society but more crucially because it is our economic systems that fundamentally need to change if we are to avert ecological collapse. And there is this like, you know, radical effort to keep open the possibility of that, like, you know, real restructuring. But at the current moment, like the coordinates of what is possible is your, it feels like your, your primary concern. And, and it, you know, it feels like part of the point of your work then is to inform states, especially vulnerable states, about how to like counter the claims of energy companies through a kind of determined and detailed understanding 
of what you call legal entanglements. I mean, this is maybe not uh, exactly relevant, but the fact that, you know, the um, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, considered the largest climate action bill in American history, requires the government to issue new oil and gas leases, mm-hmm. like to just dwell with that paradox. <laughs> you know, if the point is to raise awareness about the current and future use of these agreements to um, penalize states for taking action on climate by just you know, fighting pollution, decarbonizing the economy. I guess, do you have any sense of how your tactics of empowering people to understand these legal entanglements are being received? Do you feel as though there is like a a social tipping point happening in terms of um, greater knowledge of ISDS and, and attempts to combat it? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that it, it's it's not hard to once you explain this system to people, it doesn't take very much for them to be kind of shocked and disgusted by it. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it, unlike a lot of aspects of of globalization, which seems sort of complicated. Like trade agreements are quite complicated, and you can see mm-hmm. sort of some benefits and some downsides. But investor state dispute settlement is just such a uh, such a clear example of excessive corporate power that I don't, I don't think anybody, um, people have a very hard time. I think uh, the arbitration, the arbitrators and the lawyers that try to defend the system these days are, are trying to get on this, oh, well, we need it to, to defend the renewable energy sector and have green transition. But those oh, arguments yeah. are really, really frail because the, there's no evidence whatsoever that, that the agreements do anything to uh, increased flows of any kind, let alone renewable energy, uh, mm-hmm. and s- studies that have been done interviewing renewable energy investors, they, they don't even think about these agreements. So, um, mm-hmm. so I think it's not hard to get the the public on your side. But I mean, the the problem um, with with many issues. I mean, first of all, you have so many competing issues, and, and climate is got so many fronts that we can fight on obviously and and people aren't necessarily gonna see why we should prioritize getting uh, rid of isds but uh i do think that climate i mean one of the one of the reasons i started writing more about climate and less about uh investor state dispute settlement and and uh environment more generally we was because i feel like there's um just much more uh, potential within the climate movement to, to to take on this issue. So even if the if the lay public still hasn't gotten the the message that investor state dispute settlement is uh, is terrible, uh, or even if they have gotten the message but they don't know what to do about it because it's it's hard to know what to do about these um, sort of arcane agreements, I think the climate movement really has, especially in Europe. Uh, done an amazing job of of galvanizing action and the the specific example is the energy charter treaty which is oh yeah uh a, a large agreement so it's effectively the same content as a any of these um thousands of bilateral investment treaties that exist but it's it's very big because it's got all the countries in the european union involved as well as japan uh and some other countries so it's 50 uh in total and it's been sort of really targeted um, 
because a lot of the a lot of cases have arisen and a lot of fossil fuel cases in particular. So the one I mentioned about Italy um, getting successfully sued over a ban on offshore oil that was under the Energy Charter Treaty. The the cases about coal power phase out in the Netherlands those are all the also the Energy Charter Treaty. Uh, there's a case in Slovenia mm-hmm. about fracking and so forth. So there's a huge number of cases under the treaty, and a lot of them have to do with fossil fuels. And so uh, the sort of a combined effort of a lot of uh, environmental NGOs and sort of more uh, specific trade justice advocates and so forth have been working together on this campaign on the Energy Charter Treaty for the last couple of years. And uh, the, the treaty was undergoing this process of modernization and, and because there was um, pressure to to try to try to change it and make it more in line with the, the Paris Agreement, they came out with this proposal that basically was going to allow countries to carve fossil fuels out of the treaty, but over a rather extended timeline. And it wasn't something that all countries had to do. And so it was only really uh, the European Union and, and the UK that were going to do this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people came out and criticized the the modernization proposal and then um They've, they've just managed to put so much pressure uh, on it that effectively now, I think there's 11 countries that have officially already stated that they are withdrawing completely from the treaty. And the European Commission has also put forward a paper accepting that there's no possibility for the U- European Union to really stay in. Uh, so they're they're figuring out how to get out. The, the problem is, is that there is this uh, clause in the treaty called a sunset clause, which exists in in many uh, treaties, which basically says that if you terminate the treaty, um, then for 20 years after that uh, termination point, the in- the investors that were already uh, in place, the investments that were already in place are protected. So for 20 years, 20 <laughs> which years. in climate terms, oh you know, God. we don't have 20 years to protect yeah. fossil fuel investors. So they're trying to come up with a way uh, to get around that and for countries to basically at least agree to cancel it within the European Union, they could cancel it among themselves and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it's, again, that kind of legal entanglement that even if you realize mm-hmm. that a treaty is really harmful, it's not easy to get out of it. Um, so, yeah. But I am really inspired by uh, the work that has been done by those groups um, because I, really prior to prior to that, I didn't have... A lot of hope. We did have the example of the multilateral agreement on investment, which got, um, you know, was the sort of considered the killing that was kind of considered the first um, success of the quote unquote anti-globalization movement. Mm -hmm. But since then, we really haven't um, had a lot of progress. You get these these fights that come up about big agreements like the um, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and mm-hmm. uh, the TTIP, which was between the U.S. And, and Europe. But all of these bilaterals, these little treaties, continue to exist and cause problems. And it's hard to generate any kind of mobilization around such a diverse group of, of countries and, and yeah. treaties. Um, but I feel like the Energy Charter Treaty example, if that treaty collapses, I feel like that will open up a lot of opportunities for, for getting rid of the system as a whole. Yeah, um, there's sort of no time for pessimism. This is what <laughs> um, uh, Gernot Wagner, who's another kind of climate ec- economist, uh, said on my podcast that there's a lot of things that I sort of, uh, he and I don't exactly agree on. Like yeah. I think one of the things that I wanted to bring up was, you know, your work and, and his work, while both focused on questions of whether, like, for example, 
the emphasis on economic growth can mm-hmm. um, be be continue to be normalized, like in a in a future of uh, emissions reduction. Like his feeling is that um, we're like wasting our time in having a conversation about growth. That in many ways, like um, um, a regulated market, will provide the kind of green growth that we need. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't think you see that at all. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a, an, a different sort of almost, I would almost describe it as a, like a kind of utopianism in your work, mm. or maybe if not utopianism, a kind of internationalism that reads as a bit utopian to me. Like you say in your article with Julia Calvert, for example, that international organizations can help democratize, democratize ISDS reform by creating new mechanisms for citizen engagement promoting awareness of ISDS reform among citizens and challenging assumptions about the economic necessity of ISDS. You know, it's just not something that you're going to see in Wagner's work. Mm-hmm. And I guess the reason this isn't quite utopian per se is that you're also saying uh, there are barriers to achieving that. I mean, yeah. and, and, and we need to outline those too. These sunset clauses, for example, like you can fight them with, you know, uh, if a state invoked Article 62 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of, of Treaties, where states can terminate treaties if there's uh, an unforeseen fundamental change of circumstances, like that could fight uh, these, you know, the operation of sunset clauses. Um, you know, I guess the question would be if we want to push for a future where fossil fuels, fossil fuel companies are just refused compensation um, and not allowed to create more assets because of all of the damage done and because damage that will be done, like, can we actually use articles like these and forms of international solidarity around the implementation of it to like normalize this idea of abolition? And is that so utopian, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's utopian. I think, I think generally I would describe myself sort of as a, a bit of a pragmatist. So right. um, I do think that the the thing that frustrates me the most when I when I talk with uh, government officials who actually, you know, not so much politicians, but the people that are in the, the trade uh, ministries and so forth, who are responsible for um, the day to day implementation of these agreements and for dealing with disputes that arise and so forth, is that mm-hmm. they do seem to forget that that states are you know, the, the creators of these treaties and ultimately they can be the destroyers of them as well. Like there's a lot more uh, scope, a lot more power uh, in states than I think sometimes that they remember themselves. And uh, there have been countries that have just decided this system stinks and we're going to get rid of our treaties. And South Africa is an example that has done that. Some Latin American countries have gone up and down in terms of, um, you know, as their politics go up and down in terms of uh, rejecting these mm-hmm. treaties and even leaving some of the the broader conventions that are involved with the ISDS system. Um, it's, I just, it's certainly not something that's impossible to achieve. And to some extent, I think the reason why I sometimes like, like focusing on ISDS is because I do feel like it's somewhere that we could actually have a win, you know, and in the climate mm-hmm. sphere, you get, you can get quite depressed and um, you can feel paralyzed sometimes by how much there is to do and and how difficult everything is. And I, I feel like this is something that's achievable because uh, although there are very powerful vested interests that that want to, to keep the system, 
it doesn't really have any kind of other strong foundations to stand on it it has this myth about uh, attracting investment mm -hmm. and i think if we if we can effectively just destroy that myth then that can help uh, undermine uh, the foundations of it and i i just see it as something that sort of um it is a little a little chip in the armor of you know the of corporate power that we could we could foreseeably um manage um so i like to try to uh, to chip away at it but um in terms of the other aspects that you, you mentioned in terms of degrowth and so forth yeah. i think to some extent um we shouldn't spend too much time debating green growth versus degrowth um and that we could instead focus on areas where we uh we can agree it would um, be beneficial regardless of which sort of perspective you take and for me that the utopian ideas are, are really things around like you know shorter working week and um, uh, I think a lot of people are naturally attracted to the idea of having more time even if that means less money and um, things that can sort of lead to um, potentially lead to a, a degrowth outcome but without focusing on that as being the reason just focusing on the other benefits that uh, come out of it as well so mm -hmm. i suppose that is <laughs> probably a bit utopian but it is nice to also spend some time thinking about how the world um could be a better better place with climate action rather than just focusing on how um you know the the potential negative um futures that we face especially when you deal with students every day right it's nice to oh my God, yeah. nice to try to give them um not false hope but um something to fight for good hope right this yeah. idea of good hope um and and in your chapter uh from the rutledge handbook with uh, juliet shore you say like the simple point about growth is that it makes the very high mountain uh that we need to climb even steeper why rule out an important source of emissions reductions before we even get started? And you you say like, and I, I think this is hopefully increasingly the case, maybe especially after COVID um, and one financial crisis after another, that the public seems to understand that growth does not necessarily yield well-being for mm. the majority any longer. Yeah. I mean, to look at the situation right now, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the massive... Uh, you know, increase in the cost of living for so many people. Um, you know, the fact that if the economy is doing well, what does it matter if the, the corporations are, are gouging everyone to the point where, you know, and the yeah. people that are uh, investing investments in real estate and so forth are all doing very well. But if, you know, if everyday people are finding it hard to get by, then I think there's, I think there is increasing um, understanding that, uh, you know, inequality is what we should be concerned about rather than mm -hmm. uh, growth. But unfortunately, the reason why there's increased understanding about that is because inequality just seems to keep getting worse and worse. Right. It's an emergency measure um, and not necessarily, it's a different sort of utopianism. It's like a kind of mandatory utopianism that is just responding to uh, disaster with mm. a kind of radical hope. Um, but you do say like there are other metrics besides GDP available uh, this is in your your chapter with um, uh, Sunyan uh, Young and Ryan Gunderson that, you know, for example, New Zealand's well-being budget uh, is is something that we could maybe learn from. 
Um, Although I have a colleague who recently went to New Zealand <laughs> to try to study that, and she didn't find much implementation. I don't think oh, no. it, unfortunately. Yeah, they don't. But yeah, there are models for sure. Right. It, it's like it's hard to legitimate something like the well-being budget when we have this like official sounding and very technical thing that feels more reliable, like GDP, mm -hmm. even even if it's not a measure of uh, the well-being of a society, it's just it has this kind of entrenched logic. Um, but it's like it's exactly that you're that you're trying to, I think, um, you know, find a language for contesting. Uh, I did appreciate that, like in the introduction to the, the handbook, you're talking about um, indigenizing uh, the Green New Deal. And there are a lot of sort of. Um, recognitions of the the contribution of like the you know red nation and the the red deal as a document that is explicitly about like um you know survival against capitalism effectively mm -hmm. and like you know this this yeah recognition as you say within the movement of of the importance of indigenous knowledge about conservation biodiversity and reimagining the relationship between human and nature you know in canada um, it was just the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And if we wanted to talk about and address specific cases, you do talk about like instances of ISDS happening in Canada. Um, there is also a growing sense of, I, I think, solidarity with Indigenous nations against extraction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, did you want to, uh, uh, like, would it be useful at all to kind of flesh out from your perspective, um, the shape of the climate struggle in Canada with regard to these sorts of like the exposing of these treaties and the rest, the kind of reconstitution of treaty relationships with Indigenous nations? Um, yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, generally, I think that it, the aspect of extraction uh, that you pointed out is really critical. I mean, if you look at extraction in Canada or really anywhere in the world, a large amount of extraction occurs on indigenous territory and it, it occurs right. without consent. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the you can see in, in cases um, really like a huge number of cases have uh, occurred because of um, uh, hard rock mining done by Canadian mining companies uh, around the world. And uh a number of them explicitly sort of uh, deal with uh, either indigenous communities or just local communities that are indigenous fighting back against uh, that sudden imposition of of an extraction project that they did not consent to. Uh, and there have been cases where uh, there's actually been sort of uh, protests and you have the extractive companies bringing in security forces and there being sort of violence occurring and the state eventually sort of realizing uh, that they need to stop this project because it's causing unrest. So a lot of these cases aren't necessarily about uh, the government being so enlightened that they, they have decided to take action to protect the climate or action to protect the environment. It's about the government going barreling on ahead with a project, uh, allowing an investor to come in and, and do what it likes, and then being, <laughs> you know, informed by the public that this is that this is not what they want and often exactly. it's being informed by the indigenous communities that are being uh, impacted and then that results in investor state dispute after the fact and then those communities and those indigenous peoples have no involvement in actually you know being able to defend um you know their rights and their concerns in the arbitration it's just between mm -hmm. the state and the investor 
And so those those issues of um, you know consent are are really uh, key, and there hasn't been uh, you know there's no um, accept acceptance within in investment arbitration of anything outside of investment law. So um, the UN Declaration on uh, the Protection of Indigenous Rights doesn't come up at all on DRIP, and the idea of prior informed consent is not something that's you know written into investment treaties. So the same types of issues, um, you know, we haven't had a lot of uh, cases uh, directly uh, over Indigenous concerns in investor state dispute settlement. There have been some where, like the recent Ruby River case, um, where the the proposed facility was rejected partly on the basis that it would have uh, impacted First Nations. But uh, a lot of the times it's just because... Uh, the investor involved in the Canadian context is is a Canadian investor. Um, so, so you know the the examples that most frequently come up are the the pipelines that are being, you know, uh, forced across Indigenous lands in this country. Um, some of them owned by the government, and some of them owned by Canadian companies. So those ones don't end up in in ISDS, but they are still uh, equally <laughs> concerning in terms of. Mm. Um, you know, charting a path forward for both reconciliation, but also uh, climate and environmental justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the scale of the problem that you're outlining is obviously really uh, staggering. Uh, you say 55,000, over 55,000 upstream oil and gas projects in 159 countries um, are predicted to have a final investment decision made during 2022 and 2050. Um, and there are all these bodies pointing out how these projects are being shielded by ISDS. And, you know, the IPCC has pointed this out. Um, and you say that investors are being encouraged to anticipate the threat uh, to their investments by climate action. That's maybe hopefully going to be taken by states to reduce emissions if it's not prohibitively expensive, um, the sort of liability and especially the economic damages in uh, the global South. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to um, wrap your head around, but what struck me was, so you're, you're looking at how law firms are advertising this as a tool to aid lobbying, um, you know, by fossil fuel companies. So it's like, you're, you're pointing out like almost in this prophetic mode, like this is coming, like as more climate action uh, occurs, um, there is going to be a, a kind of backlash and, and compensation that will, you know, um, slow down and even shut down that action. And, and so what struck me is how your research is anticipatory as well, in the same way that these firms are, are pointing out, hey, you better uh, protect yourself. You're saying that, you know, while right now we haven't seen a litany of cases by investors claiming that climate action is cutting into their profits, we should expect more to to, to occur. Um, and so this kind of this mode really appeals to me of, of kind of doing research. So I appreciate all the work that you put into it. <laughs> um, and it's a pleasure to talk to you about it. And um, did you want to let uh, people know like what you're currently working on or what what they can expect to see in the future? Yeah, so um, the most recent paper that I finished was um, for a, a special issue on on supply side policies, and it's um, with some co-authors, and it's it's focused on that Italian case uh, that I mentioned, where the offshore uh, 
ban the ban on offshore oil was was successfully mm -hmm. challenged by a British company, uh, and then also comparing that with a a case here in Canada called Lone Pine, where uh, a, an American company challenged um, a ban on on extract on gas fracking underneath the St. Lawrence River. That case wasn't successful, but there were some still some aspects of the the tribunal's findings that we find sort of quite disturbing. Um, and so we were making arguments in that in that paper basically about it's more of a, a you know a legal analysis than the sort of anticipatory um, work that you were talking about. But uh, that will be coming out in a few months. And then I'm also working on a an article about the Keystone uh, XL dispute. This one I, I find really fascinating just because I, 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 I like unpacking the sort of claims that investors make about how they they expected um, political stability and they expected the rules would not change or, or so forth, while at the same time they're clearly investing so much time and energy into political lobbying to right. make sure that outcomes are favorable to them. So clearly they understand that these decisions are not made on a purely technocratic basis and that this is all political climate. <laughs> Climate yeah. action is political, and they're trying to influence the politics. But then, when they're in these legal disputes, they're saying, "No, it's not political. Governments should just make these decisions in a completely technocratic way." So, trying right. to sort of unpack the kind of things that the company was doing in terms of trying to influence the political process in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. in that in the Keystone pipeline uh, dispute, I do I do also just I'm generally fascinated fascinated with pipeline disputes. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's it for now. And then I'm, I am hoping to write sort of a more uh, popular and digestible kind of um, explanation of the system uh, when I get a little bit of time off teaching. So <laughs> that'll that'll be in the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, it, it does take a lot of time to do the work of like awareness raising and trying to foster the sort of conversation uh, that's that's needed. And and I yeah, I appreciate you making this time. Um, it's it's really especially interesting, like the, the Lone Pine case, to think about the concerning findings around, like labeling the government's dis, uh, decision making political as though like that is a red flag. Yeah. Um, you know, just that that question of the political here, uh, the place of the political, is interesting in terms of like the narrative, as it were. Um, you know, whether to what extent, like seemingly neutral phrases like net zero by 2050 resonate more than explicitly political statements about the kind of future we want to inhabit um, is one that like I'm left with reading your work. So thanks so much for your, um, your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. It was great.